0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Uh, this can be found uh, on page 808 in the uh, black uh, pew Bibles in front of you. It's Matthew 2, 13, 23. Please read with me. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they care no more. <clears throat> but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went, uh, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that, went, uh, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I really love that line spoken by uh, Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird when he says, you know, you never really know a man until you understand things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. So much truth there, right? But I want us this morning to extend that courtesy to Mary and Joseph. Because if you think about it, we often sentimentalize this story because of the nostalgia of Christmas. But This little young teenage couple has found themselves in an awfully bad way, if you really think about it. First of all, Mary is a teenage girl who has been paired with a husband-to-be, which of course would be daunting for any culture, but she's also turned up pregnant. Now, we know what we believe, presumably, to be the real story of her pregnancy, of course, but no one else did. So not only does she have to deal with the potential public shame of being pregnant out of wedlock, but also with the anxiety of knowing that likely no one in her community is going to believe this. We know for a fact that even Joseph has a whole time sort of buying into this whole virgin birth business. Second problem is, is the politicians have decided to raise taxes again. Your family's lived under the thumb of Roman Emperor, uh, the Roman Empire for quite some time. And so now you and your husband have to take a little road trip on animals, no less, to some town 80 miles away, so you can register, so that you can pay more taxes. Well, while you're there, your water breaks, and the baby's coming now. So there you give birth in this strange town. Your mom's not there. There's no aunts. There's no grandparents. Third, something truly horrific happens. Word gets out that the king of the land fears that a rival has been born So he decides to stage a little mini-genocide of every male child under the age of two. Historians tell us that in Bethlehem at that time, that would have been probably somewhere between 25 and 50 children killed by these Roman occupiers. Can you imagine the trauma that must have gone through that community? Mary and Joseph, of course, escape in the middle of the night, but only so they can flee to a country that's 300 miles away, no less of course, finally you learn to make do for the first couple of years, I'm sure, in Egypt. But you finally get a piece of good news from back home. The king is dead. So you head back home. But for whatever reason, you can't settle in Bethlehem where you gave birth. And, of course, is your husband's ancestral home. You have to settle in Podunk, Nazareth. And raise your child among, let's say, much less desirable elements. I mean, seriously, climb into Mary's skin and walk around in it. What is going through your mind? Remember, she remembers the angelic vision. She she remembers her cousin Elizabeth acknowledging the uniqueness of this child. But look what's gone down since then. There is no way that she's not thinking to herself, God, where in the world are you in all of this? Are you anywhere at all? I find it really interesting. Years ago, I began to take note of something that people almost always say when they're going through legitimate suffering, the chips are really down, things are hard, they'll always say something to the effect of, well, you know, all I know is that whatever is supposed to happen is going to happen. And it strikes me, why does that comfort us? Why do we say things like that? Why does our mind drift in that way? And I think it's because of this. When we are truly in distress as people, when we're actually in the midst of suffering, what we want to know is, is is first of all has the universe just gone off its rails is that what's going on is there no driver at the wheel of the universe or maybe just maybe there's a deeper purpose here look this morning we're digging into our look at jesus the hero by looking at the circumstances surrounding his miraculous birth but i want to submit to you that mary's question is our question this morning why is god letting me go through the things that i'm going through Is there any meaning behind my suffering, especially when it seems to hurt me so badly? And Matthew does something amazing in these stories, because what he's going to do is he's going to deal with their suffering by connecting Mary and Joseph's pain to these very deep, hidden rhythms, these slow vibrations from the stories of their own ancestral origins. And in that, he dares to suggest that everything that was happening to them was a fulfillment of what was to come. That's our key word this morning, fulfillment. Everything that is happening is what was supposed to happen. And I want to submit to you this morning also that the comfort that was available for Mary and Joseph is available to you and me as well. And so I've taken these three quotes that Matthew mentions at the end of, of Matthew 2, and I've given them three different headings. Number one, a Jewish do-over. Number two, a God who grieves. Number three, a branch arising. Let's take that first one first. The first fulfillment story we get starts in verse 13, and it's pretty straightforward. There's an angel who tells Joseph that he needs to take his family to Egypt for a while because King Herod has turned into a monster. He wants every male child in the country, younger than two, killed. Again, put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. I mean, that is a nightmare. There is no way that they did not have other friends who were parents who had children that were killed. It's too small a community. They had to be thinking, there is no way that God can be in this. But of course, Matthew is inviting us to say, no, I want you to see what's actually happening here. Because the horrific evil that Herod is executing... You ready for this? It's happened before. You can almost hear Matthew saying, look, you need to understand, reader, that power-hungry and insecure leaders who commit unspeakable acts of horror have happened before. But you can also know this. God has a pattern of how he works in those same histories that you need to remember. And so, in verse 15, Matthew again, he taps that deep history by quoting from the prophet Hosea. Verse 15 says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Okay, so immediately you get Matthew offering this connection between what Mary and Joseph are suffering and something that happened in, Egypt, in, in Israel's past. Now look, but you have to understand that the connection that he's trying to draw is not the same kind of connection that you and I typically think about whenever we start to talk about fulfillment in stories. Most of the time when we hear the word fulfillment and prophecy, we think of something called predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy. That is, we have this sort of um, in our heads, this idea that there was Hosea and you know, he's a prophet. So God's spirit kind of came over him and he pulled out his crystal ball. And in his crystal ball, he could see through the clouds and be like, "Ah, oh, here's this young couple fleeing to Egypt in the future. And so he writes it down. And when all of a sudden it happens, that prophecy has been fulfilled. Does that make sense? That's what we typically think. Now, look, there actually are times in the Bible where that kind of thing sometimes happens. But for the most part, that's not the way the Bible treats fulfillment. And I really want to encourage you to get this right, because I've actually students talked to a lot of students through the years who have actually found this to be a reason to abandon the faithfulness of the Bible because they see the way in which these New Testament writers are quoting from the Old Testament. And they're like, that's not what it meant in its original context at all. What's the deal? Well, it means we have to look at it, what it means. Because what Matthew is quoting is from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Let me read it in its original context from back in Hosea. Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Okay, so do you see what Hosea is talking about? In this little poem in the midst of his letter, he's he's putting God in the role of a father. And the Jewish people he's collectively calling his son. Happens all the time in the Old Testament. But he's a good father, right? because he comes and he rescues his children from slavery in the desert, but they keep worshiping other idols. Hosea is trying to say, God has been faithful, and yet the people have been faithless. That's the message. But you see, though, how Hosea is looking back, right? He's not looking forward into a crystal ball, (laughs) because if he is, it really doesn't work very much. Hosea is actually looking in reverse to something that God did all the way back in the book of Exodus forward. He's not looking forward to some small family on the run from some despotic maniac. What's the deal? Well, simply put, that's not what Matthew means when he says that it was fulfilled. Instead, what Matthew means is simply this, that there has been a story that's been unfolding throughout the Old Testament. There's been ups, there's been downs, there's been failures, there's been rescues. But in all of these stories, something's being pointed to. They're waiting for something, for someone to fix the holes in Israel's failures. So what Matthew is saying is, in this really crazy, powerful way, is that Jesus is where all of the storylines from the entirety of the Old Testament come together and finally make sense. That's the point. Now, my hope is, is you've heard something like that from this pulpit before. But you may not realize just how much Matthew wants to illustrate this, not just in what he's saying, but even in the way he's writing this particular gospel. And so I've thrown together a little, a little chart to try to unpack this real quickly. Because I want you to see the contrast of what he's saying. On the one hand, he's drawing elements from something that ought to be familiar to every Jewish person. On the left-hand side, in Israel's story from Exodus chapter 1, you remember that the story in Exodus opens with the Jews in Egypt, and then directly after, we find that there's an evil king, Pharaoh, you'll remember, who starts killing children. Okay, that sounds familiar to Matthew, and he relates the stories, but notice in Jesus' version, he reverses them. That is, it begins with an evil king killing children but then Jesus' family ends up residing in Egypt. You see? Okay, hold that thought for a moment because that's not the only time which Matthew does it. He does it again when he realizes suddenly that if you look back at Israel's story, the Jews wander through the wilderness on their release from Egypt for 40 years, only to cross the Jordan River as they enter the promised land. You remember that? Well, as it turns out, in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, Matthew does the same thing, but notice what he does. Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River, and then in Matthew chapter 4, he spends 40 days in the desert. But I want you to notice this. In each case, Matthew reverses the order. Now, I'm one of those people that believes that the people who wrote the Bible actually did things that they did on purpose. (laughs) that Matthew's trying to say something here by reversing this order. And one commentator I saw said this. He said, look, what Matthew is saying is, when Jesus arrives, what he's going to do is actually rewind the story of Israel. And he's going to start over all over again. Except this time, the Messiah is going to accomplish what Israel failed to do over and over and over again. So you see what the message he's saying is. What Matthew is saying is, and I, I want to I overstate this. I think what Matthew is trying to get across to us here from the very outset is one of the most transformational things about the Christian gospel. There's no other religion that comes close to what we're about to say. <clears throat> because in, you're in the midst of suffering, what is it that we need the most? It reminded me when I was a child, and I was thinking about toys. When I was a child, there was a certain toy you could go and buy that uh, the older people remember that were called models. This is before we had things called electronics, kids. They were really amazing. It came in a box, right, and you had to open it up, and there were all these little plastic pieces that you snapped off this little grid. Remember those, right? And then you had to sit at your mother's table and don't ever get glue on your mother's table or, they would, or your mother would kill you. Um, and you try to snap them together. And then they had these meticulous little tiny uh, uh, stickers that you had to kind of get on there. And I would sit and try to put these little models together, a model plane or a model boat or whatever it was. But invariably, it was too much for my sort of, uh, you know, fumbly hands. And I would just throw up my hands and be like, I can't do it. And my father, very patient, would walk over because he enjoyed this kind of thing too. And he would walk away and he'd be, son, it's okay, stop, stop, stop. Let me do this. And he would sit down and I would look over his shoulder and watch him put the model together. I think that's actually what Matthew is saying. And the reason why I'm so sentimental about those stories is, is because when you're in the midst of suffering, one of the most powerful voices in your head, am I wrong, is the voice of self-condemnation. When you're suffering, one of your instincts is to say, "What, what did I do wrong? Lord, what did I do to deserve this? How have I failed you that I would be going through what I'm going through? But what Matthew is preaching is this. Jesus walks over and he sees the mess that we have made of our own lives. Because it's all true. A lot of the self-condemnation is quite deserved, is it not? But he walks over and he looks at the mess that we've made of our lives, including the glue on mama's table, and says, stop, stop, stop. Let me do this. That's what Matthew is saying. This is a Jewish do-over. The whole nation of Israel is being, is being conceived in Matthew's mind as met in the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to relive Israel's history, but in reverse, and he's going to do it right. That's amazing. I don't know that there's many more powerful breakthroughs that you can have as a Christian than to realize that Jesus paid it all. It doesn't get any more powerful than that. Jesus did not come to show you the way. Jesus came to be the way. Jesus is not here to point you to the destination. Jesus is the destination. Or, to put it in Matthew's terms, all this happened to fulfill what was written by the prophets. So, a Jewish do over. That was a long one. I had to illustrate that one long. The other two are quicker. Let's go to the second one, and that is a God who grieves. Look, so the massacre begins in verse 16, right? And it's an absolute nightmare. You can only wonder how many years people talked about this horrible scourge rent by uh, Herod. But again, Matthew looks at this whole terrible misery, and he sees a culmination of God's dealings with his people. And it goes all the way back to the prophet Jeremiah this time. Now, who was Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was one of those prophets who actually got to witness one of the worst seasons of Israel's life, which was when the Jews were being dragged away as foreign slaves to the land of Babylon. He even watched the temple get burned down, which would have been horrific for a Jewish person. So Jeremiah sees all this. And in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, he says this, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, what in the world is Jeremiah talking about? Well, First of all, Ramah Ramah, is just a small little city outside of Jerusalem where Jeremiah is actually watching all this stuff go down with the Jewish people being dragged away, lots of people being killed. But as he's watching this horror, for some reason his mind drifts back to a Jewish matriarch, Rachel. Does anybody remember Rachel from your Bible trivia? Rachel was the favorite wife of the patriarch Jacob. And if you go back and read her story, you'll see that she actually dies in childbirth, giving giving birth to the last of the 12 children of Israel, Benjamin. Kind of a sad ending for Rachel. But by the time Jeremiah is writing, the idea of Rachel has kind of taken on really iconic status in Israel. She's this larger in life symbol as much as she was a one individual person. So that one commentator puts it this way. He says, what is Matthew doing here? He's picking up the storyline in the life of Israel's Messiah because yet one more big bad empire, one more evil king killing and oppressing God's people, the children of Rachel. And it's as if the voice of Rachel reaches over the centuries yet again who were being killed and oppressed by yet another Pharaoh. He went on to use an illustration that went like this. I thought this was fascinating. He said, you can imagine... It's amazing that it's 20x years ago. But when 9-11 happened, I know a lot of y'all were not born in 9-11. But when 9-11 happened and the city of New York descended into chaos, um, that that was a national tragedy. There was not a person in this country that didn't feel the weight of that event. But let's imagine that there was an artist who wanted to depict the pain of that moment. And in this picture they drew of maybe New York and smoldering ruins there. They painted a picture, I don't know, maybe of... George and Martha Washington over in the skies looking down on New York and kind of weeping. That's, a, that's kind of what Matthew is evoking here. He's trying to say that in the midst of your suffering, Rachel, your matriarch, she weeps for you. Heaven above is weeping in the midst of your pain. So you can see what our takeaway is, which I think is incredibly powerful. Because that's the other question we ask. Where is God when I suffer? And the answer from this passage is he weeps. God weeps. God grows angry. God takes action against our pain. Now granted, almost never on my timetable. But he grieves with his people. And the reason why that's so powerful, people, because you begin to understand that a lot of the mischief of pain is not always the thing that's causing you the pain. Sometimes when you're suffering, you know the reason for the suffering. You know why it's there. The hard part of the suffering is how isolated it makes you feel. Suffering makes you feel lonely. Read C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed. He'll talk all about this, of how lonely you feel when you're sort of isolated. And yet what the Bible is constantly saying is, is that this is not a detached God. He is grieving with. He is crying with He hates the sufferings that humans inflict on each other just as much as you do. And the Gospel of Matthew is going to teach us. He is setting in motion a series of events that will culminate in the end of all suffering. Eventually. It's powerful encouragement, is it not? But that leads me to the last little nuance that Matthew wants to comfort us with. And that is this branch arising. It's the last fulfillment passage. Because Joseph has yet another angel that has to go to him and get him back to his homeland this time. But of course, it's complicated because Bethlehem isn't as safe as it should be, given that the new ruler there was a little too closely tied to Herod's style of a leadership, I guess. So instead of going back to Bethlehem, he goes up to Galilee and finds a little city called Nazareth. And then Matthew drops a very curious quote in verse 23. He says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Hmm. Uh, The reason why I say curious is because there's a little problem. Because if you search through the Old Testament, nobody ever said that. Ever. As a matter of fact, you'll never even find the name Nazarene anywhere. Uh, Nazareth as a town didn't even exist, historians tell us, until like 150 years Uh, before Jesus which would have been I guess what uh, 250 years after the, the Old Testament had been finally written okay so what gives Matthew well look two things very quickly to notice here first notice the passage says so that what was spoken by the prophets plural might be fulfilled in other words what we believe is is Matthew is not quoting from a single source but rather he's drawing off of an idea an idea that more than likely permeated throughout the entirety of the Old Testament in the minds of almost all the prophets. Secondly, if you actually learn just a little bit of the original language in which the Bible's written, you'll see, you'll see the amazing thing that actually Matthew is unpacking here. It's, it's wonderful. And it starts with a prophecy that we do know about. And we can find the best example of it from the, God, from the, um, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11 again, Isaiah says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, right? King David, who was the great uh, predictor of the Messiah. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What's Isaiah talking about? Well, he means that in the coming years, when the Messiah arrives, it'll kind of be like a little offshoot coming up from a stump that got cut down. Do you know what he's talking about? Have you ever seen sort of a tree that got sort of freshly cut, and you wait around a few weeks, maybe a couple months, and sometimes a little green shoot. Well, try to pop up on that stump, hoping to bring life in a place that you thought there was nothing but death, right? Well, the rest of the prophets of the Old Testament, they kind of like this idea. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what it's going to be like. So in Jeremiah 23, 5, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. Again, Zechariah 6:12: Behold, a man is coming whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build a temple for the Lord. Okay, this is where it gets fun. <laughs> because the Hebrew word for branch, you ready? In Isaiah 1 is nazar, nazar. But when that word got translated into the language of the New Testament, into Greek, the Greek word became nazir, or the plural form was the Nazarene. Hear it? So you see what Matthew's doing? <laughs> He's doing this little play on words. Literally, translated literally, the name of the town that Jesus was from was Branch Town, Stick Town. I love this. If you ask a place where Jesus was, Jesus was from the sticks. Right? That's what Matthew is saying. In other words, he's saying, but don't miss the, the, the metaphor. Jesus is coming from a place where shoots spring up from a place that you thought was dead. You thought it was death. You thought it was the end. You thought nothing good can happen there, but yet that's where life came from. Now, look, when you combine that with what the disciples thought about Nazareth, you get the full picture, because Nazareth was not a cool place. It was not respected. You go to John chapter 1, and the apostle, uh, the disciple Philip, goes to, uh, what is it, Nathaniel. He goes to Nathaniel and says, oh, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, ooh, can anything good come from Nazareth? Who would come from there? Really? Jesus is from the sticks. That's the point. Now, why would that matter? Well, I want to close with this thought. Because suffering is an experience of finding yourself in places where you think no one can find you, or finding yourself in places where you feel, you just feel minuscule, you feel like vapor when it hurts you look around and you're thinking to yourself i am completely alone in all this and there's no way that god could find me here what else does he have to worry about than what i've got in little old here but matthew's going to come along he's going to say look the messiah that's coming was despised and he was afflicted and he was one who was cast out you're going to find over and over again that jesus is going to do his best work not among the power brokers of the culture Jesus was no influencer. Jesus was no someone who was pulling the strings of how things were sort of mover, shaker in that particular culture. That's not where he was. Jesus comes from Nazareth. And Matthew wants you to know that because he says, look, he's going to do most of his work among the people that you've marginalized. Among the people that the rest of us have sort of set to the side. And he says, I'm not going to be among the powerful. I'm not going to be among the beautiful. I'm going to be among those that actually are of low estate. And for someone who's suffering, that is music. So you can say, look, not only are you not so far away from what he has in his purposes for your life, you are dead in the center. The more isolated I feel, the more stump-like I feel, the more miraculous is that little shoot that pops up. I love that image. This image in the midst of the deadness of our lives, we suddenly see a little shoot. You know when it happens? Sometimes it happens on Sunday mornings. Where someone came with a little word of encouragement and suddenly there was a shoot. And you thought to yourself, I didn't think anybody could find me here. But they do. And the Holy Spirit comes to bring Jesus to bear on you. And you suddenly dive into his word and find out this is the way he's always worked. Jesus comes precisely at the lowest moments when you think he is totally absent. One last word. Don't be alarmed, but I was poking around online doing some research a while back at a website called onlinetherapist.com. Bear with me. And I was looking up, doing some searches for articles that dealt with how to be fulfilled as a person. And it was really amazing in looking at all the articles that came up about how often the the, the path to fulfillment was to be found by, by discovering your true passion, right? It was about learning to be really true to yourself and who you know you are. It occurred to me that every one of those signposts was pointing me inside to look on the inside for that fulfillment. Here's the point, though. I think what Matthew is setting us up to study for the rest of this year is this very simple idea. What if fulfillment is going to come from the outside in, not the inside out? That there is nothing on the inside of you except deadness and stump-like misery. But if someone comes and rescues you, if someone comes along and sits down beside you, if someone comes alongside Mary and Joseph and says, look, I've been here before, step aside let me do this, step aside, let me do this, because I have you, I have you, then maybe we might look at what Jesus is doing here through different eyes, and we might find ourselves with a desire to even follow him. Who knows? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, maybe you might lead us into that, because we need it, because suffering screams loudly. You speak to us through your word, but you scream at us in our suffering, C.S. Lewis said, and there are many of us, Father, who have We've fallen on hard times. We don't know where you are. We're worried. And yet here with Mary and Joseph, we see them wandering through the countryside and in all kinds of terrors around before and without. We see them wandering through and they need to know that you're there. And we do too. So maybe this morning as we sing, you might remind all these people that you are near and that we would cling to you even better and that we would come to find you, find you in the midst of all this struggle. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.